Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. Governor Dayton will be back to work in St. Paul this week after a more than month-long stay in the hospital. He returned to the residence this week for his final Thanksgiving as governor. This follows an extended stay at Mayo Clinic after two back surgeries and some unexpected complications. Dayton held a conference call with reporters this week to answer questions about his health and why those complications were not disclosed sooner. Governor Dayton has been through several major health issues over the past five years, including back surgeries and a hip procedure. He fainted while delivering the State of the State address in 2017. The governor was also diagnosed with prostate cancer. His latest setback was a lung infection after his most recent back surgeries. Lung thing has no effect on my ability of my cognitive function or my communication with staff. I mean, I'm, whether I'm here or at the residence, uh, our communication system's been basically the same. I had a member of my senior staff down here uh, physically in Rochester every day. Still, the infection was severe enough to require him to need additional oxygen and keep him in the hospital more than a month longer than planned. Republican Lieutenant Governor Michelle Fishbach was kept aware of his situation, but the governor says he never considered temporarily relinquishing control. So I don't think there was anything that needed to be disclosed to anybody about my capacity to continue fully as governor because I was continuing to function fully as, as governor. Dayton says he doesn't think his office misled the public about his condition or whereabouts. Frankly, all of you were consumed, as you should have been, with the election and the new administration and everything else. So I, I don't think you can hold me or particularly my press team responsible for a lack of communication. Although it's true most reporters didn't start asking about the governor's whereabouts during the elections, most of his daily schedules said he was meeting with commissioners and staff with a dateline that said St. Paul and not Rochester. Meanwhile, Governor-elect Tim Walls continues to prepare for his transition into the governor's office in January. This week, he named a staff of nine who will be responsible for interviewing and appointing commissioners. Walls will need to fill a total of 22 commissioner positions. Commissioners currently serving in the Dayton administration will need to reapply for their jobs if they're interested in staying on board. The goal is to have those commissioners in place by the time Walls is sworn in on January 7th. They will also need to be approved by the state Senate during the upcoming legislative session. Minnesota regulators renewed their support this week for Enbridge Energy to replace an aging oil pipeline across northern Minnesota, but opponents did not let that prevent them from trying to get their message across to state officials. Line 3 would condemn us to as much carbon pollution as I'm asking you to sit down. The room will be in order. Dozens of protesters shouted at commissioners at the Public Utilities Commission before walking out of the hearing Monday. This is actually a continuation of a hearing from back in September that was postponed when protesters disrupted that meeting. The controversy is over Enbridge wanting to build a new Line 3 across northern Minnesota. They argue the current pipeline is old and at risk of leaking. The commission actually approved the project this summer. It says Enbridge has met several additional conditions to ensure the line will meet all safety and environmental standards. I think that these modifications and conditions will help, um, as I said in the last hearing, make this much more of a Minnesota project. Opponents argue the project would endanger pristine areas of wilderness in northern Minnesota. 
Governor Dayton issued a statement saying he's extremely disappointed that the PUC evaded concerns raised by the Department of Commerce and that his administration will review its options. Governor-elect Tim Walz has previously said he supports the line as long as tribal concerns are addressed and the pipeline passes all environmental reviews. Minnesota is now in full compliance with the federal Real ID Act. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security sent the notification to Governor Dayton this week. Minnesota started issuing Real ID cards last month. Minnesotans have until October 1st of 2020 to update their state licenses to Real IDs to enter some facilities or to board domestic flights. Get ready for more road construction. MnDOT has identified $10 billion worth of highway projects on its agenda over the next decade. That's from the state's newly released 10-year plan. It calls for improvement to hundreds of bridges and highways across the state. Brett Hofflin shows us the new way drivers can keep track of all of it. It's the fifth largest network of roads in the country. We have a big system. And Minnesota is home to more than 12,000 miles of highway. It costs a lot of money to maintain. That's why Brad Utech with MnDOT is keeping track of it all and is focused on what needs fixing over the next decade. If we don't maintain those uh, the best we can, then we end up spending more over the long run. So what does this $10 billion plan look like? Well, this is a new interactive map designed to help drivers feel more part of the process. So this is a look at the metro. Metro District. By simply scrolling, the map zooms in on its own to a specific area of focus. Here you can see a project along I-35W. It has notes along the side about the specific improvements and then when the construction is planned for. The number one priority tends to be maintaining our existing systems. UTEC stresses they generated the list of priorities thanks in large part to the public's feedback. We're trying to make sure the pavement's uh, comfortable to drive on and safe and the bridges are obviously safe and, and last for Years. Another issue on the top of the list is relieving congestion. And thanks to additional funding in the budget, MnDOT is using it on new interchanges and MnPass lanes in the metro. I would say for the most part, um, if you're in a location that has one of those projects, you will see some benefit. But over the whole system, um, it's probably not going to get a lot better over the next 10 years. Um, we just don't have the funds to do that. Brett Hoffland, 5 Eyewitness News. Despite this investment, by 2028, the state anticipates nearly 3% of Interstate roads and just over 5% of interstate bridges are projected to be in poor condition. That doesn't mean they'll be unsafe, but you may experience some rougher conditions than usual. To see how this plan impacts where you live, we posted that interactive map on our website at kstp.com. And oh yippee, more road construction. <laughs> Anybody, anybody who's tried to get through downtown Minneapolis in the last several months uh, knows what I'm talking about. Uh, joining me now for political analysis, Annette Meeks and Darren Broughton, uh, thank you both for being here. Uh, let's start by talking about uh, funding that's going to be necessary despite this $10 billion plan over 10 years. We hear day after day that it's not enough, that we're billions short of what it's going to cost to upgrade our roads. I know you're not a big fan of some of those projections. Well, part of the problem is we have enough money to do whatever they want to do. So it's what your priorities are. This administration's priorities have been light rail and other transit projects. We're able to build a $2 billion Southwest light rail train that we really don't need. And frankly, there's not a lot of want for uh, versus fixing our roads and bridges. It's all what your priorities are. And, of course, it looks like the Walls administration will be very similar. And, in fact, uh, the governor-elect talked day after day about seeking a gas tax increase to pay for even more road projects. 
this is a piece I think is really interesting for the governor-elect. He's coming out of the chute early with a big idea, which is we're going to fix our roads and bridges and our transportation system here in the state. Yes, he's talked about doing the gas tax. On the campaign trail, though, he's also talked about there's an opportunity to do some trading on other tax relief, having the surplus, which we'll know more about here in the next uh, couple weeks, of where we're at on that. There's an opportunity here to do something big on that. I think the governor-elect deserves a lot of credit. And Republicans in the Senate are likely to push back and say we don't need a new tax, especially if a budget surplus comes out here in a couple of weeks. They're going to say, why don't we use existing tax revenue, which they've tried to do the last couple of sessions. Exactly. And, and bonding and other things we can do for long-term roads and bridge expansion. That's one of the things we don't do is we do a lousy job of just maintaining what we have. There's no talk about where congestion is really critical about expanding those roads and bridges. We don't even think that big. Uh, but the, the tax thing, I'm old enough to remember when Governor Plenty vetoed the gas tax, uh, what, about 12 years ago? And, and MnDOT at that time said they would work on cleaning up the agency and developing efficiencies and, and issue a report. I'm still waiting for that. Do you expect there to be resistance uh, now that there's a Democratic-controlled House and, of course, a Democrat in the governor's uh, office to using other tax revenue, existing tax revenue, like sales tax on auto parts and uh, rental cars, those types of things? Well, I, I think this is going to be an interesting session coming up because having a divided legislature, you have a governor-elect who is really involved and wants to help make deals. I think there's going to be a lot of trade-offs about, you know, can we do a gas tax and how do we use existing sales tax revenue on auto parts and whatever? Uh, and how do we offset then other things? I think it's going to be a dynamic legislative session in 2019. Now, the Senate Majority Leader, who is a Republican, Paul Gazelko, was a little concerned about the transition team for Governor-elect Walls. He thought leaned way too far to the left. He's a little concerned about what that might mean for legislative priorities. Well, I, I think it was funny that they have one Republican who hasn't endorsed a Republican in, what, a decade? Uh, that was their token Republican. It is a pretty far-left group. And I do hope that the Governor-elect starts talking about things other than um, a, a left-leaning administration when the Minnesota still remains deeply and almost evenly divided. Well, I don't know if it's evenly divided after this last election. Uh, but, you know, I think the transition team is there to help provide guidance. At the end of the day, this is the governor-elect's decision of who gets to be on the cabinet. Uh, and I think Minnesotans can put a lot of faith and trust in, in Tim Walz. Now, speaking uh, of governors, the current governor has been in the hospital for well over a month, or was in the hospital for well over a month, uh, several weeks longer than we thought he was going to be there. And they were not very forthcoming about his whereabouts. Is that something that we should be concerned about? I think we should be concerned about. I mean, I understand that the governor had some personal issues that he had to attend to while he was there that as complications from his surgery. You don't like to really talk about your personal medical conditions. On the other hand, you're the chief executive of the state, and his staff should have been very forthcoming, and especially letting the legislative leaders know where he was and what his condition was. Because, frankly, during an election, when there's a lot going on with all of these elections going on around the state, a lot of reporters are not paying that close of attention to where the lame duck governor is. They generally lay low during an election, but they were not very transparent about where he was. They weren't the most transparent about it, uh, and they probably should have been a little bit more. But at the end of the day, the governor was able to maintain the office and the duties of the office that he was elected to do, uh, holding meetings uh, while at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Uh, there's no real problem.
All right. Well, regardless, we wish him well. We hope he exactly. makes a full recovery. Back surgery does not sound like any fun to me. No, it whatsoever, does not. Especially with complications. Uh, Annette and Darren, thanks for being here. Up next, Catherine Tanucci and Andy Brem will be here for Face Off. And former Viking and state Supreme Court Justice Alan Page shares his new Presidential Medal of Freedom with a very special group of students and teachers. Former Minnesota Viking and state Supreme Court Justice Alan Page shared one of the highest honors in the country with students and staff at the Minneapolis school bearing his name. The Page School community hosted a celebration for him Monday, just days after he was honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom in Washington, D.C. They can touch this medal. They can see it. They can feel it. And all of a sudden, it, I think it becomes more concrete, the possibilities. Governor Dayton also proclaimed Monday Allen Page Day in Minnesota after his great career as a Minnesota Viking and, of course, a Supreme Court justice here in Minnesota. There is no end to the good work <laughs> that that man does. And his late wife, uh, Diane, they both meant so much to this uh, community, and he still does. It's uh, great the work he's doing. Joining me now, uh, Catherine Tanucci and uh, Andy Brem uh, for Face Off. Let's start by talking about Nancy Pelosi. She is uh, likely, I think, to be elected the next House Speaker, but it's not as easy as I think she'd like it to be. I, I expect so, and we see this battle come up every few cycles, and it looks like she, when, they, when the Democrats caucus next week in D.C., it looks like she will have their support. I think key is the fact that no one has really risen above the ranks to challenge her as a viable alternative to Nancy Pelosi. And so while many um, old members, new members might want something new, no one has emerged strong enough to challenge her directly. And I think that really speaks to her stamina and her political acumen. She is a skilled, skilled politician who has worked very hard um, to, to get where she's at, and I think she will likely be reelected as speaker. There is no question. Her staying power is <laughs> remarkable, and I think in some ways Republicans almost want her to get reelected because she is the Republicans' favorite pincushion on the Democratic side, much like uh, President Trump is for Democrats. Well, I think that's right. I mean, again, I think for the good of the country, new leadership would have been a good thing. Nancy Pelosi's agenda is pretty tired. I mean, she talks a lot about impeaching President Trump. She doesn't talk a lot about bipartisanship. She talks a lot about a very liberal agenda. So I think for the good of the country, it's unfortunate. But you're right. In, in, a, in a, an election year where really there's a lot of anti-Trump sentiment, I think that's ultimately how Democrats got the majority, where Democrats are going to have to have a a productive agenda for the country, and I don't think we're going to get that with Nancy Pelosi. There was a letter that was circulated, signed by, I think, 15 or 16 uh, Democrats saying they wanted new leadership. One of them has since recanted, and now it's down to 15. But she's had to trade some, some favors to get support. One uh, representative, Democrat from New York, said uh, he had gotten assurances she would take seriously lowering the medic, trying to lower the Medicare age to 50. Uh, that would be very expensive. I mean, is she going to have to make some promises to get the support she needs? Well, we'll see. I mean, she certainly will have to offer some things to members to get their support. Um, we'll see how that plays out with a divided government and a Republican president, but Democrats will be aggressively pursuing their agenda that they campaigned on, and that's one of those things, I think, that, that people would like to see. And then you've got someone like Dean Phillips elected in a district that had not elected a Democrat in nearly 60 years. Uh, he has talked about wanting new leadership. doesn't look like he's going to get it. I don't think so, but listen, Dean's a savvy guy, and uh, that's a good position for him to take. Uh, let's talk about uh, two years from now, uh, 2020. I, I know it's, <laughs> we just got through. We just weathered the storm of, of an election. Is Minnesota going to be a presidential battleground after Donald Trump came very close to winning this state? 
Well, I think so. Signs point to, to Minnesota being a battleground in 2020. There are a number of factors, though, I think, in play here. And number one among them is whether or not Donald Trump runs again for re-election. And we certainly didn't see, um, you know, I know Jeff Johnson, for example, a candidate who embraced uh, President Trump, hoping to get some of that Trump effect in Minnesota, didn't come through in 2018 for him. And so um, I think it'll be a real challenge for Republicans running statewide, and I think that'll be true for Republicans trying to run, win the state in 2020, unless it's Trump. And then there's a little bit more of a I don't know factor because he's managed to turn out people where we've not seen Republican turnout before. Yeah, and against all odds right. that we don't expect to see. And it is remarkable, though, when you look at the fact that right now Republicans don't control any statewide mm -hmm. offices. And so it's curious when you see people talking about us as a battleground state. Well, I think it should be a battleground state. There's no question about it, but it, be, it depends on what we offer in 2020. What Republicans offered in 2018 didn't work. Republicans cannot win statewide if we continue to do so poorly in the suburbs. That's just not a mathematical possibility. So again, the Donald Trump of 2016 worked that year. I think it's going to be a different playbook in 2020. So I hope my fellow Republicans are sitting down and figuring out how we can tailor a message that appeals to suburban voters as well as other areas where we do well. But our strategy this year isn't going to work in two years either. All right. Well, well, we'll see what happens. It's going to be uh, coming sooner than we all think. Uh, Catherine and Andy, thanks for being here. A former pro football player and sports broadcaster opens up about his biggest challenge to date. I don't like to talk about that. The personal health struggle Irv Cross now faces and how he wants to help others going through the same problem. From coast to coast, Irv Cross was once the face of football on TV after his NFL playing career. He also left a mark on college and civic programs here in Minnesota. After a very public life, Cross opens up about a new personal health ordeal. He explains to Eric Chalou why he's donating his brain to help other struggling athletes. The sound of the show open meant only one thing in the 1970s. NFL football was coming on the TV. Welcome to Tropical Bloomington, Minnesota. That's Irv Cross in the Burgundy Sport Code alongside Brett Musburger and Phyllis George. A great shoe controversy of Fred Cox. Irv, tell me about that. Irv broke new ground as the first African-American national sportscaster. I never thought about being the first of anything. I just wanted to do the best job I could. And Irv Cross runs the ball back. Before stepping into the booth, Irv played on the gridiron. Now at almost age 80, he's bearing a new cross. All these years after the game, tell people, how, how are you doing now? <laughs> you might ask. Well, I, 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 yeah, um, I don't like to talk about that because um, it sounds worse than it is. Like so many retired pro football players, you know, I've had some some issues with uh, my nervous system, my brain. In a newly published book, Irv talks about the never-ending headaches around the clock. He wrote, I don't drive a car anymore because I'm afraid I might not get back home. I lose track of where I am. All it takes is one building being torn down or something changing on a familiar route, and I might as well be on Mars. Irv says he has mild cognitive dementia, and the treatments aren't helping. I've been doing this for two years almost, and I can't get anything. Back in the 1960s, Irv delivered bone-crushing hits for the Philadelphia Eagles and L.A. Rams. We had plastic hard shell helmets that we used to split a lot, so you have a helmet-to-helmet -helmet collision, and you would split those darn things. You had your problem with the uh, your brain bouncing all the, 
everywhere in your, in your skull. But nobody thought about that as a concussion. Nobody thought it was serious. It was a dinger. He shared a recent conversation with an NFL great. He said the only thing he had left now was a bullet. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I don't want to do this anymore. <clears throat> so, so I told him, just take it easy. I'll see if I can find some help for you. And he's still around. But it was so sad to hear that. And that, along with his own struggles, has helped Irv face a new opponent to tackle. We're all on Earth, all here for a purpose. And the challenge is to find out what our purpose in life is all about. By now donating his brain to research to help all of those suffering. I did it primarily because I thought it would be a waste to not give it. What Irv is sure about, he says, is that his faith will guide him on this new journey in life. It puts the world in a better perspective, no matter how bad things are. Eric Shalhoub, 5 Eyewitness News. Irv carries a brain donor card in his wallet for the Concussion Legacy Foundation for CTE Research at Boston University. That's where scientists are trying to figure out why certain people get the neurodegenerative brain disease that's currently only detected post-mortem. He says he wishes he had more than one brain to help solve the problem that is causing so many people pain. Up next, how you can own a piece of a popular St. Paul bar and help out a good cause at the same time. A longtime St. Paul watering hole may be gone, but you can still get a piece of it as a keepsake. The 77-year-old O'Gara's Bar and Grill at the corner of Snelling and Selby has been demolished. But you can now buy bricks from the original building at the liquor store next door. 100% of the proceeds go to the Alzheimer's Association. I'm glad people want a little piece of history, but they also want to donate to a good um, cause. Here, these are from Chad Radenbaugh, the owner of Park Liquors, says it's up to the buyer to set the price. He says about 400 bricks have already been sold. The old O'Gara's will be transformed into apartments and an updated O'Gara's will reopen in 2020. This 60-year-old pine tree will be all dressed up for the holidays at the governor's residence. It was cut down last week in the Namaji State Forest. It'll be set up and decorated tomorrow. Holiday tours at the governor's residence start next month. You can listen to episodes of that issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have links at KSTP.com. That's all the time we have for now. We'll see you again next week.